evening, Sarah Hepla. Good evening, Nancy Rommelman. Did you know that Christmas is around the corner? What are we? Are we selling something? What's, <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> yes. Now it's time for me to sell Hello, my holiday meatballs. Um, I thought I'd take this opportunity. No, I wanted to. I was trying to create a segue toward the fact that we have a Christmas gift. Oh, we do. We have yes, a Christmas gift, and thank goodness he's more technologically advanced than we are because he figured out how how to get himself into the room here with us yes. from Seattle. You want to introduce our guest, Sarah? I will. Uh, I'm going to put on my glasses first. For many of us, Sherman Alexi was the first voice we heard from the reservation. He grew up on the Spokane Indian Reservation in eastern Washington, and over the past quarter century, he's written many award-winning books and poems about the Native experience, including his breakthrough short story collection, The Lone Ranger and Tonto Fistfight in Heaven, which became the 1998 classic Smoke Signals, a script he wrote. He also wrote the 2007 semi-autobiographical novel, The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian, which I highly recommend on audiobook because he is the narrator, and it's awesome. These days, he's gone Substack at shermanalexi.substack.com, where he writes poetry, fiction, and nonfiction with a kind of sly observation, humor, and direct hit of honesty that's made him so beloved. Sherman Alexi, welcome to Smoke Em If You Got Em. Oh, thank you. Uh, wow, a Christmas gift. I don't know that I've ever been a Christmas gift. <laughs> that's right. Where's the bow? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. no, I, I've never been the kind who would look good in a bow. <laughs> Sherman, um, I'm I have to tell say- you something real fast. It's that your hair is amazing. I didn't know this. Your hair about is amazing. You. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. It, it's right it's now. It's like a wave of salt and pepper. <laughs> Partly because I, I've I haven't done anything with it today, so I just ran water through it to look semi-presentable to you. Men would kill for this hair. This full head of hair. I make the joke that, yeah, white guys have all the land, but I have all the hair. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good one. Um, I would just like to second what Sarah said about listening to your book on audio. I loved it so much and your delivery. And also, you know, for me, who's sort of native adjacent with my daughter and her family, just to also hear the the cadence and the humor, the humor, the humor, the humor is so important. And I wrote down, um, I was reading, first of all, I would like all our listeners to know that, uh, and I'm not blowing smoke here. I, I think your Substack is my favorite Substack these days. First of all, you're insanely prolific. And it seems to me that when you want to, you can do anything. I mean, there's like essays, there's journalism, there's fiction, there's, there's poetry, including, um, what was the one I sent you the other day? The Dark City, Sarah? Oh, I can't remember the called? name of it. It was so yeah. good, though. Oh, about the uh, the uh, the new meth or the new fentanyl smokers in the stairwell. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's um, it's just brutal, um, but also just so tender at the same time. And um, I just want to commend you for just being like an all around fantastic writer. I, oh. I just I, really thank you. It's interesting. One of the reasons why I never focused on genre was because when I started writing, all the Native writers were genreless. All of them wrote poetry, nonfiction, and fiction. So I didn't know that I was an oddity. Maybe because at that time, the genre was Indian writer. 
I still think it is, but uh, 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 (laughs) yeah. So I think the fact that all of them were writing in all the genres didn't make me think I had to specialize. Uh, And you don't. No. And I, I think it's far more common now, I think, than it was in the past. I think the separation between poet and fiction writer was very strong. Mm-hmm. And the, the idea that poets writing memoirs, and there have been quite a few over the last decade. I mean, a poet writing a memoir, it's sort of like, weren't you already doing that? <laughs> <laughs> um, and also, of course, now I love that you, I like that Sarah said you've substacked. I mean, you have the opportunity to do whatever you want, whenever you want it. I mean, we've always had that as writers. You could always write in your your, your journal on you type little things and files, but now you can just flow it out. Just like get it, get it, get it out into the world. Yeah. I mean, I'm a performer too. And mm-hmm. this combines a sort of stage performance with the writing itself. And it there's there's a lot of improvisation on Substack in the sense that I'm sending out first or second drafts often. Yeah. Uh, I've sent out things that I just typed to the last period and sent out. So I'm really enjoying the daredevil nature of that. And it feels like being on stage, which I miss, which I'm slowly returning to after COVID has ended. Oh, that's cool. It, it, I, I get that, um, that it would feel like being on stage and having that improvisational nature, also getting the direct feedback of the audience, which you don't get. Like you and I, like you, we all know that when you write a book, you know, you write something and then it sits somewhere for nine months, maybe a year and a half. And then maybe, you know, it's like the, the slowest trickle of response. But the instant feedback that you get on Substack is so rewarding. Yeah, I, I, I love that. And, and then you become... I wouldn't say friends because, you know, we don't know one another, but you have the people who are constantly engaging yeah. and you learn about how they're thinking, not who they are, but how they think and what they think. And there are a number of them who've actually said things and responded in ways that had me rewrite and change and rethink pieces. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. Parts of them, you know, line breaks I've changed because of something somebody said in a poem. And uh, it's not every time, but it's happened enough to where I think it's a valuable part of Substack that I don't think I've even said. Maybe I should make a post about that. Um, Have you met, because this has been happening to me this week, just in New York, there's a lot of obviously parties and, you know, work stuff going on. And I have several times, I think six times in the past two days, met people that said, oh, hi, hi, Nancy. I've never met them, but they do feel as though they know you. And I kind of love it, you know, and it's not just because, okay, it's a fan. It's not really like that. They really do feel like they know you. And I guess in a way they do, you know? Yeah. It's, you know, I haven't been out so much, but it happened this last week. I was at a, a democratic political event and, uh, three or four people, said, oh, I read your Substack," which that mm-hmm. had never happened before. Uh, I mean, people have recognized me because of my books, yeah. but I've never yeah. heard, I, I read your Substack," And there was a thrill to it because it's, it's new. It's uh, great. Yeah. And <laughs> uh, I, I do worry a little bit about the parasocial nature of it. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, I, it hasn't happened yet, but I'm sure we're all going to get our share of Substack stalkers. Uh, stalkers or trolls. Well, we actually did yeah. a we do a monthly Zoom, and we did have a troll on the Zoom. I, I was trying to figure out if it was actually a regular listener. I was like, 
why is this person posting pictures of a naked man screaming? Is this funny? And I don't get it. Well, no, it was a troll. Um, when you say you perform, what what kind of performing? Oh, I mean, I I my I I don't read the stories necessarily. I really perform them as if they were a stage monologue, and I improvise a lot. And I haven't demonstrated it necessarily yet, but I'm funny. And <laughs> well, uh, and. Well, it uh, yeah, it's a combination of literary reading, monologue, stand-up comedy. Uh, I've been known to juggle. <laughs> if the audience isn't responding, okay, how about this? Um, <laughs> so I actually clipped um, a piece, the, the BIPOC piece that you wrote. Uh, I clipped this out in terms of humor. And you wrote, I don't think the outside world knows that Indians are hilarious. Pretty much every tribally connected Indian would kill at a comedy at a comedy club open mic night. Indian humor is so vital in Indian culture that I'm always suspicious of unfunny Indians and I'm actively scared of unfunny leftists in general. This has always 100%. been my experience and I've been around the native world for my entire adult life because my first husband and our child and his family and the idea that you never until kind of recently with like Reservation Dogs and some other works, you just didn't see Ending is being funny, and your work, of course, included endings being funny and just so funny in general. And I love that you're putting that out there. I love it. It it has to be known. <laughs> yeah, and it it goes back to what uh, Sarah said at the beginning about reservation life. Uh, very few native writers, artists, actors, filmmakers, musicians, very few are actually res raised. Right. Uh, Native American art is very urban, as is all art. And and uh, so when I started writing, I just started I was I was still living on the res when I started writing. So I was still daily immersed in reservation life and culture and daily immersed in humor. So that naturally found its way into the work. I mean. I'd be in my basement bedroom writing, go upstairs to get food, and my siblings would be pitching me shit and making fun of me. And then I'd go back downstairs and write. Right so uh, that just became a natural part of the writing because I was living in the environment in which I was writing about. Uh, so there was no, I didn't have any precious idea of what literature was supposed to be, what I was supposed to be writing about. And I'd read some res writers like Adrian C. Lewis and Simon Ortiz, James Welch, who spent time on the res, and I saw what you could do. Uh, so I think I was, I think I've been the funniest Indian writer for a long time. Mm -hmm. But I would just say that's because I'm among the resiest Indian writers. <laughs> resiest, ooh. <laughs> By the way, I I did a Google search today just because I was curious what the internet thought. Like, who is the most famous living Native American? Do you who would you guess that is? Famous living? Yeah, living. Because if you like, say famous in like who's the most famous Indian, it's immediately like Geronimo. Yeah, living Indian. Uh, 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 there'd be. Deb Holland, Billy Mills, me. Uh, You're on some of the lists. Yeah, uh, Nancy, uh, do you, can you think of anybody? Sterling Harjo. I don't even. I know guess he's still alive. He so, created Res Dogs. So, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. sorry. I thought it was going to yeah, be Lily sorry. Gladstone. Um, not yet. Oh, yeah. Not, not yet. yet. Not I think yet, she's but... on her way. Yeah. 
Oh, yeah. Um, but uh, no, Jason Momoa. Oh. <laughs> uh, is he? I know. He, it's like, such a cheat, right? No, there's, like there's, you know, it's, there's a fascinating thing happening with the word indigenous. Right, right. Yeah, which part of why I bring this up. So generic. Uh, indigenous <laughs> is now used by any brown skinned American from anywhere in the world who has been colonized by white people. Right. So, of course, you have to you have to point out that it's the melanin content that matters, that nobody's going to think of the Irish as indigenous, even though they are and have experienced the same things uh, by white people. Uh, but, you know, we fought for decades to get Native Americans cast as Native Americans and not oh. uh, not South Americans or Central Americans, not uh, Pacific uh Island Americans, because we are natives, we're Indians, we, let's cast Indians as Indians. But now it's flipped in a way that that's all fine now because everybody's indigenous. So Jason yeah. Momoa and 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 Graham Greene are the same people now. Right, right, Wait, right. But what is Jason Momoa? I he's, he's from like Hawaii. He's, he's from Hawaii. Hawaii with that, with that sort of uh, maybe a native great grandma thing. I mean, that's good. Yeah. We've made fun of that our entire lives as natives. For for centuries, we've made fun of people who have that one claimed great, great grandmother who's native. And now that enables you to call yourself indigenous, regardless of what else you may have in your ancestry. The, what the joke is like you get a nosebleed and you lose your native blood. Yeah. When I mean, yeah, there's all the, you know, <laughs> thumbnail Indian. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't shave. <laughs> <laughs> Right. The the story that you wrote on Substock that Nancy referenced, um, this is a piece that's about the I and BIPOC, and it's subtitled, Not All Native Americans Are Leftist Political Activists. Um, but you talk about like how basically Indians don't really use the word indigenous as a general rule. And you have this great line. It's hilarious to note that the word indigenous now seeks to finish colonialism's ultimate mission to disappear individual people and cultures into the mainstream population. Yeah, it, it's a it's a it's a line on a resume now. It's yeah. a completely capitalist idea. It's become a capitalist idea, and that's really sad. I wrote one of the big memes, all time memes, all time repeated and echoed lines of dialogue and smoke signals. The DJ yeah. in the movie says, "It's a good day to be indigenous," which mm -hmm. I love that I wrote it, and it's mm -hmm. it's constant thing you'll see on the internet. But now. It, it has, it used to mean it's good to be an Indian. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, right. That's what it meant. It was just a fancy, funny way of saying it. And now it hits a little differently. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, we call ourselves Indians. Uh, I, I, when my daughter was little and her dad's, her dad's full blood, my daughter's yeah. dad. And I would tell people, I'd say, oh, yeah, she's Indian. And they're like, now, don't say that, Nancy. Say Native American. I'm like, dude, he, they say Indian or skins, okay? You, I understand yeah. you're living in Hancock Park here in L.A. Believe that you know better, but I'm going to go with what they call themselves, all right? It's, it's so funny. Skins has almost totally disappeared. Oh, it was so common. It was yeah, just. No, it is. Just, it is. Uh. Uh, it's another another term of designation for natives for your audience members who don't know this, that one of the terms we used for ourselves was skins, uh, yeah. which, uh, yeah, it was completely part of my dialogue growing up yeah. and into my yeah. young adulthood. Uh, 
so much so i mean adrian c lewis a, a paiute writer who's passed but his his first novel was called skins uh so cool. it was completely a part of and it's disappeared and and I'm just going to say, as an, indigenous. Let's. I want to make a. I, I want to make a protest sign that said, "Drop indigenous, <laughs> re-embrace skins." I'm just going to say, as an outsider, as a whitey outsider, skins totally sounds like a slur, though. Oh no! It's it's, it's, it's like it's, the no, N word, right? You're not going. No, totally, I would never like. I would never use that. <laughs> oh, you know, it's so funny. You know, this is big name dropping, but uh, I was on the Colbert Report years ago, and and I mentioned that you know we call each other skins, and he says, "I don't think I can get away with saying that." but he also referenced i hadn't thought about this is that the replicants the clones in blade runner are also derogatorily referred to as skins oh so and i hadn't thought about that and i'm still mad the way you get mad about things you didn't say in the moment oh yeah spirit of the stairwell yeah, yeah when he said that about about you know uh Skins, I thought they called the replicants in Blade Runner. And I said, well, we are the replicants in Blade Runner. So for 17 years now, I've regretted I didn't come back with that one. You know, I I just had the word Indian uh, taken out of a piece that I wrote and replaced with Native American. And, you know, why did that get so fraught it's it, in the 90s there was this incredible push to to excise that from our vocabulary and then i would travel around um arizona and some of the other reservations there and they'd be like no no no, we call ourselves indians and i was like yeah. okay that's not what's being reported out there <laughs> yeah well ha- well as usual it has nothing to do with what we think <laughs> or, or it, it has everything to do with what a very small percentage yeah of indians think uh, and, you know, that's what my piece about the Iron BIPOC was about, is that a yes. certain subset of the Native American world, the urban leftist elite, uh, are the ones who are determining so much of the public perception about us. Now, I am a member of the urban leftist uh, Now, Indian Now elite. you are. Yeah, now I am. But I wasn't always. And mm-hmm. I still don't live inside that mindset. I, I, I mean... We're all who we were as children, no matter how hard we try not to be sometimes. I mean, yeah. I, I'm I'm still Junior the Res Boy, at least as much as I'm Sherman the Urban Indian. Yeah. Yeah, you make a really interesting point in that piece that, um, you know, was not surprising to me, although I hadn't quite seen it or articulated it, That would, which was that people pushing leftist Indian activism were often people that had been what you called, you know, de-tribalized, like they didn't actually have a connection to the reservation. Um, you have a, a line, if I can read you to yourself again. Um, the detribalized Indian activist will find their indigenous identity almost completely inside their leftist politics. Instead of going to powwows, they go to protests. Instead of going to stick games, they go to organizing meetings. Instead of hanging around the campfire, they hang around Twitter. And it's, you I know, actually, I clipped that out and sent that to my daughter today, yeah. who is, you know, she's 33 and is a, you know, a different generation and has grown up slightly differently, not, she's just not like, she doesn't care about any of this stuff particularly, like the stuff, like the Twitter stuff and all that. She's like, yeah, mom, that's just stuff like that you, you think about. I, I have found in my experience, it's very hard for people who actually don't hang around the native world at all to not be romantic 
about Indians, right? To not put them under some kind of bell jar, to not say, they're so spiritual, Nancy. I'm like, what? It's a dude, whatever. We're watching TV over here. Like, can you relax? It doesn't mean that there's not like truths and things that we can talk about, but it's very annoying, I would think, to be just like, be thought of as so precious. Well, it's dehumanizing in just a different way. Uh, I mean, please let me have my scars. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's actually the scars that make me interesting. Uh, when I'm, when I'm, when I'm being agreeable, it's generally when I'm my least interesting. <laughs> it's a, uh, I just did... Sorry, yeah, go ahead. No, just as it's, it's, it, 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 what it does is it ignores the vast majority, the vast percentage of, of complicated, real, messy Native Americans. I mean, it ignores the huge percentage of Natives who are utterly secular. Uh, uh, there is such a thing as a secular Indian. There are a lot of them. Uh, uh, that's what's one of the funniest things about the leftist uh, elite Natives is they they present themselves as being so traditionally spiritual. Uh uh, you know, they they wrap environmentalism up in native mm-hmm. theologies, but I mean, you can't get them anywhere near any kind of church. I, I'd be very curious to know how many of the native environmentalists actually participate in environmentalist ceremonies inside their tribal communities. And if they did, we'd hear about it because everything they do is public. Mm-hmm. Uh, the thing about that kind of Indian and the pretendians, the people who are pretending to be Indians, is that their whole lives are a public performance. Uh, every utterance, everything they do is couched in Indianness, in indigeneity. I hate that word. I hate that oh. word more than any other word in the history of the world. Indigeneity. Well, that's like a big lasagna uh, of a word. That's just like indigeneity. Yeah. And, and uh, as far as their private lives, they don't even have one. Or we don't have access to, I mean, we're writers. So, of course, people have access to our private emotions because we give it to them. So they can make guesses at our private lives. You know, they, they can read us and sense, well, this is who they are when they're off the page. But when you read a pretendian's work or pay attention to them talk or say anything, there's no subtext. Their whole lives are text. Because it's a it's a costume in yeah. a sense. Like first of all, if when you look at pretendians, because I was looking into this, of course, when you know the whole Buffy Saint Marie and all this stuff, and we'll talk a little about about that. It's looking more into some of these like professors at different schools, and you find out they're not native at all. But of course, in their picture, they have braids <gasps> and they have beaded earrings because it's a costume they're putting on. They're trying to pass, yeah. right? And and of course, you know, I, I was talking to someone, and then you you go and and say well, these people aren't actually native and they're like the head of your native studies department. And the colleges are like, well, it's, you know, it's really too hard to trace. It's like, no, it's not too hard to trace. People know who their people are. Okay. Like they know, but you know, it's, 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 I wonder, (laughs) I do think though, not just because the internet makes it harder to maybe hide or all that, but I wonder if people are going to as much be pretendians when natives and Indians 
are actually more in the mainstream, like a Lily Gladstone, like Reservation Dogs, when you're seeing that Indians are actually human beings, like they're listening to rap music and they're fixing their car and they're eating, you know, cornflakes for breakfast. They're not just like, ooh, with some flute on a mesa somewhere. If people, if it's going to be less romantic, so maybe you're going to get fewer pretendians? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) where pretendians thrive, where they gravitate toward to is public displays. So the, it's in, it's in art, it's in music, it's in, uh, Hollywood. Uh, there are pretendians right now cast in major Hollywood productions. Uh, okay. And some of of the Indians you are seeing are not Indians. (laughs) Some of the Indians working on these projects are not Indians. Can we go back? There there have been two high-profile kind of exposures of Native personalities. The first one that crossed my transom was uh, Sashin Littlefeather. Yeah. Um, the second one was Buffy St. Marie, who is a folk singer m- better known in Canada. Uh, I did not know her, but uh, have since watched a documentary. Were those two things, were those surprising exposures to you? Uh Sachin a little bit, uh, because I've, I never met her, but I knew people who knew her and I knew real Indians who knew her and they'd never expressed any concerns or thoughts. Uh, uh, Buffy, I'd heard suspicions my entire life. Really? Yeah. Uh, I met her once. I performed with her once and, you know, we all come from communities. All of us come from sub communities Mm -hmm. and, you know, I mean, let's say you're way into pickleball. When you meet somebody who knows pickleball, you're going to know they know pickleball by their vocabulary and 100%. their general being, their sense of the world. And we all belong to many of those communities. Uh, and there are public figure Indians I've met who don't have the vibe. Right. I think, yeah. Wow. You don't know pickleball, do you? Yeah, and, yeah uh, exactly. <laughs> and, and Buffy felt that way. Now, Mm -hmm. I've met real Indians who feel that way because they're disconnected, because they've been disconnected, because they've been isolated. Uh, But once you feel that vibe, you start thinking, huh, so what's going on there? And so I thought that about her. Uh, So I'm not surprised at all. Uh, I I, I don't think anybody over the age of 40 is surprised that this happened. And I think a lot of the, we call them defendians. The mm-hmm. Indians who defend pretendians, we call them defendians. I, love I don't think there's a whole lot of defendians of Buffy. I, I think she's getting defended by a lot of 20 and 30 year olds. Right. Uh, I think this, this is one of the things that really get me in trouble when they hear this. I think. Hi, Smoke em If You Got them, listeners. This is Sarah Heppala with Nancy Rommelman. Hi. We're inviting you to listen to the rest of this conversation, but you have to subscribe. Go to smokeempodcast.substack.com slash subscribe. We hope to see you on the other side. Bye.